0: If you've got a Bible, make your way to Ephesians chapter 1, continuing our series through the book of Ephesians. This is on page 976 in the Bibles that are around you. If you don't have one with you, please uh, grab one that's there around you so you can follow along. And one of the things that we do sometimes when we pick up a Bible is we automatically default to, to begin like, picturing it just very rural and, and very, you know, the, like Jesus and his ministry around Galilee. And so we think about fishermen and farmers and shepherds and, and sheep, and we just default picture the biblical world like that. But a lot of the time you get to Paul and what he's doing in his missionary travels around the Mediterranean, that, that's not the case at all. And Paul is going to urban centers in uh, the Mediterranean world. He, he's going to these places, to the center of these places. And so, um, I mean, big populations. And, and one of these is Ephesus. And so, Ephesus, in the time that Paul was there, was a city uh, with a population around 250,000 people. All right. So, this is an urban center. This is not, you know, rural, far away. This is an urban center. And it, had, uh, it was on a harbor, and the interstate system of the day had lots of connection points there. Roman roads went through there, so the world was shrinking with all of that. Had a harbor, had roads, had major uh, banking center. The Temple of Artemis was there, which is one of the seven wonders of the world at that time, and is a place of uh, b- demons and divination and, and paganism. Uh, this is why Ephesians speaks about the principalities and the powers uh, more than any other book. It speaks of, of demons and those sorts of things more than any other uh, New Testament book. And it's because the temple of Artemis was there. And so I tell you all of this so that you'll understand this isn't like shepherds and sheep just far, far away. This, this, F, Ephesus is Nashville. Like, it was the it city of its day. People love to come to Ephesus. And so it's an urban city. It's got that temple. It's the IT city. And so it's in that context, like these people are a lot like us. And it's into that context that Paul came and planted a church. He was there for around three years as the pastor of this church before he moves on to other missionary journeys. And now, like the letter that we're reading is written by Paul. While he was under house arrest in Rome. He had gotten arrested for sharing the gospel. And they had chained him to a soldier in, in a house. And so what Paul did in the midst of that. Is he just kept on sharing Christ. And a slew of like the entire prison guard unit. Starts coming to Christ. And in the midst of all that. He also takes the time to write a couple of letters. To the churches that he's planted. Throughout some of his missionary journeys. And that is what we're studying in Ephesus. One of those letters that he wrote to the church. And he wrote it as an encouragement to them to remind them of who they are in Christ. That, that they are, that's the answer. Who are they? They are in Christ. That's their identity. Not where they live, not what, what they you know, drive, a donkey or a camel, not, or you know, whatever you drive. It's not that, Our identity is not in those things. Not in what we wear, not where we live, where we're from. Our identity is in Christ. That's who we are. So he's writing this to tell them that and to tell them on the basis of that how they are now to live. And so the book breaks down like that. Chapters 1 through 3, who they are in Christ. Chapters 4 through 6, how we are to live in Christ. And so that's what the whole letter is about. And so he begins with this poem of praise that we've been studying for the last three weeks. It just details aspects of who we are in Christ. I prayed through some of them. But we're just looking through three through six, you probably even have most of these underlined. We are blessed in Christ. In Christ we're chosen, in Christ we're adopted, in Christ we're redeemed, in Christ we're forgiven, in Christ we're lavished with grace, in Christ we've been made an inheritance, in Christ we're sealed with the Holy Spirit. So just all of these, just blessings upon blessings like a fireworks, you know, extravaganza, just getting bigger and bigger and bigger and just it's going on and on and on, just unspeakable blessings that we have in Christ. And so that's what verses 3 through 14 have been about. Praise for God's blessings. And now the section before us today and next week, because we won't make it all the way through. If last week was the last three weeks been a praise for God's blessings, now Paul transitions to prayer for God's people. He begins praying that we would that we would get all those blessings, that we would know them deep in our soul, that we would understand and live them out as a display of of the gospel. And so the big idea today, like if you're going to get one thing that I say all day, it get this that because of what Christ has done, the gospel is displayed through the prayerful and confident living of God's people. That because of what Christ has done, the gospel is displayed through our thankful and Thankful prayer and confident living. And so let's jump into this next section that Lee read. And, and let, me, let me show this idea of thankful prayer and how that impacts our living. And so look at verse 15 again with me, if you would. Ephesians chapter 1, page 976 in the Bibles around you. Verse 15 For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, I do not cease. To give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. And so the first thing that Paul does after dwelling on all these blessings that have been given to us, the very first thing he does is he prays with thankfulness for God's people. And so number one in your notes, that's what we're going to talk about. Number one, pray, like this is application, pray with thankfulness for God's people. Number one in your notes, pray with thankfulness for God's people. And look at verse 15. Put your eyes on it for a minute. Paul is thankful for two important characteristics of God's people. And I want you to underline them. The first one, right, for this reason. What reason? Here we go. Because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus. So there's one reason. So underline that. And love for the saints. And the reason I want you to underline those two things, both of them, is because they are both essential qualities of Christians. I mean, in a way, they sum up what it is to be a Christian. What is a Christian? A Christian is someone who has faith in the Lord Jesus and love for the saints. That is, the church. Both of those things. That's who a Christian is. Like... You can't be a Christian without faith in the word Jesus, right? Most of us in here would, even if you don't know Jesus, even if you're just in here kind of checking out Christianity, you would say, yeah, a Christian is someone who has faith in the word Jesus Christ. They recognize that God is holy and that man is sinful and can't ever measure up to the standard, the holiness, the perfections of God. And so God, in his grace, sent Jesus to live a life that we couldn't die the death that we should have and rise in victory over that. And through faith in him and what he's done, we can be made right with God. Faith in the Lord Jesus, like that is an essential part of what it means to be a Christian. You can't be a Christian if you don't have faith in the Lord Jesus. But you also can't be a Christian, it says, without love for the saints, Okay, the church. This is why in 1 John uh, chapter 4, it says, If anyone says, I love God, but hates his brother, that's the context of the church, your brother or sister in Christ. If anyone says, I love God, but hates his brother, he is a liar. In other words, love for the saints is proof. Of your faith in the Lord Jesus. That's why Jesus says in John 13, 34. A new commandment I give to you. That you love one another. Just as I have loved you. Which is, wow, how he's loved us. You are also to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples. If you have love For one another. Friends, this is how we demonstrate that we've been changed by Christ. Mark Dever puts it like this he he sums it up well, so I'm just gonna quote If you think of yourself as as a strong Christian and you get really excited to listen to an Alistair Begg or a Matt Chandler sermon or read a John Piper book, but you can't love and be committed to a group of people who are different than you who the only thing you may have in common with is Jesus, with all their faults and foibles, then I think you might not have much reason, maybe, to think that you're actually converted. Because we demonstrate, friends, we demonstrate to the world that we've been changed, not primarily because we memorize Bible verses, not primarily because we pray before meals or tie the portion of our income or listen to Christian radio stations, but because we increasingly show a willingness to put up with, love, forgive a bunch of fellow sinners. That's how we show that we've been changed. And you can't just very practically, like you can't do that, nor can you demonstrate love or joy or peace or patience or kindness sitting sitting all on your own on an island by yourself. You can't demonstrate that. We demonstrate it rather When the people we have committed to loving give us good reasons not to love them, and we do so anyhow. And so that's why church membership is such a big deal. Church membership is not about a name on a roll. Rather, it's like in joining a church, you are saying, hey, I am now your responsibility, and you are my responsibility And I'm committed to your spiritual good. I'm committed to bearing your burdens. And come hell or high water, it's my life for your life. That's church membership. And so it's church membership that's the environment where we can demonstrate not this abstract obedience to Jesus' call to love one another, but we demonstrate it with flesh and bone where we covenant together and we live it out. And that's why we put a premium on church membership here and living as a church. We don't put a premium on consumerism, just a, a me-centered approach to church where you treat the church just like it's a dispenser of spiritual goods and services. You go get into your fill and then you go home. Now, we don't do that. Other churches play that game. We don't play that game. We put a premium on being covenanted and committed to first Christ and one another. To verse 15, faith in the Lord Jesus and love toward the saints. And you can't do that love like toward all the saints in total if you can't be committed to a local group in particular. And again, love them even when you have nothing else in common but Jesus. It's easy to, you know, we could start a club over here that's around, uh, you know, running. Or we could start a club over here that's around this. Like, it's easy to get affinity groups into. Like, that's not a big deal. That does not show the power of the gospel. That's just people getting together who are like one another. You, You can do that about anything. What shows the power of the gospel is when people who don't have those things in common love one another because Christ, because of Christ. He's the only thing they have in common. And so in the church, just straight up, like, you should probably view people, maybe you view me this way, as weird. That is a weird dude. But I'm committed to him. I love him. Because we have Christ in common, and we have covenanted together to love one another. So I am committed to His spiritual good. He's committed to my spiritual good. We will bear one another's burdens. We're not just here because it works. We're here because of Christ. And so the application here is what I had you write down at the beginning. Pray with thankfulness for God's people. Like, thank God for one another develop the habit of recognizing grace in one another because our sinfulness it, it, like it's in our sinfulness it's so much easier to recognize faults and so develop the habit of recognizing grace and one of the best ways you can do this like do all of this is by getting in the habit of praying through the directory The directory is something you can find, if you're a member, on our closed group on Facebook. It's also something we usually have copies of in the back. It's something that's updated every two two, two months as we accept membership requests and resignations. And so get in the habit of praying through every month. Like on the first day of the month, the A's. Second day of the month, the B's. Third day of the month, the C's. Today is the 23rd, which would be the W's. Pray for the W's today. And as you pray, do so with glasses of grace. And as you pray for people, over and over and over, your heart will be drawn and grow, will grow in love. And so pray with thanksgiving for God's people. That's number one. But there is one more thing I want us to note before we leave number one And it's that not only does Paul, like, pray with thanksgiving, here in his letter, he's actually telling them that he prays with thanksgiving. I.e., he's letting them know, hey, I'm thankful for you. I appreciate you. And, And so note this, Paul, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is telling the Ephesian readers, I'm thankful for you. But this trickles down even to us today because the Holy Spirit, God the Holy Spirit had Paul write this so that we might also hear from the ultimate author of Scripture, the Holy Spirit, I'm thankful for you. I appreciate you. Like, people may not tell you that. People may not tell the Sunday school teacher that labors week after week in preparation to teach you or your children, prays for you or your children by name every single week. Like you may not get a thank you from a parent, but God appreciates it. God is made glad by it. God is glorified by it. But we do want to be a people of thanks. That's the accent of heaven, right? Grumbling is the accent of hell. Thankfulness and gratitude is the accent of heaven. Accents tell you where you're from. And so we do want to be thankful people. And so I just want to say thank you. I want to say thank you to the Sunday morning Bible study teachers of all ages, community group leaders and hosts, the greeters, the ushers, the safety team, the first impressions crew, those who are working kids' check in, the welcome center, coffee, to the chair setter uppers, and this is Jeff Williams' word, the trash taker outers, the counters, and those who work special events like VBS and camps, those who go on mission trips, those who are working in worship care right now. Wednesday night discipleship, the food pantry volunteers, those who lead men's and women's small groups, to the music and media team, to our committees, to our deacons, to our elders. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Can we all say thank you to them? Thank you. And let's do more of that. Let's do more thanking of one another. Let's do more praying with thankfulness for God's people. Giving thanks for the good that we can see while also praying for the good that God has yet to bring into the lives of His people. And that takes us right into number two. As you are praying through the directory, pray, number two. For the spiritual formation of God's people. pray for the spiritual formation of God's people. I like guess it's good to pray for health. That's, that's good. You should. We see that all over the Bible. But also we should pray for spiritual things, the spiritual formation of God's people. And notice what Paul says in verses 17 through 19. He's talking about how he never ceases to give thanks, remembering you and my prayers. Verse 17, that, so here's what he prays. The God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of His power toward us who believe? And so summing all of that up, again, what Paul is praying here, and what he's modeling for us to pray here, is for the spiritual formation of God's people, like a mold. A a mold forms people. We are to be molded and formed into the image of Christ. And so Paul begins by specifically praying for, like, first of all, for illumination. That's what Paul is getting at in verses 17 and 18 when he says that God may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him having the eyes of your heart enlightened or opened. He's asking that God would give them spiritual eyes to see who God is, and what God has done for them. And so when Eden was born, Sarah and I only had a flawed understanding of uh, what Down syndrome was, is. And we had no idea what caring for a child with Down syndrome, let alone someday caring for an adult with down syndrome or special needs would be like and we didn't know where to turn we didn't know uh, what to do and even in the midst of those early years where we were primarily concerned with medical challenges we lived with a burden of this desperation beyond medical issues of even having a great need that we could not fix And without even the slightest idea of where we could go for some level of help. But God in His providence sent church members uh, Brent and Melanie Koenig to us. And they came and talked to us. Daryl and Christy Reeves poured love and hope into us. Outside the church, a wonderful lady named Portia Carnahan and her dad came to see us. And then individuals, leaders with the Down Syndrome Association of Middle Tennessee contacted us. And through all of this, a brand new, like entirely new world was open to us. A world that, listen, had always existed, we just didn't know it. We didn't have eyes to see it. Our eyes had not been opened to it. It was only like in the moment of our need that our eyes were open to what was already there. And friends, our spiritual need is great, like in a, in a big picture. And then each of us in little individual ways that we all have going on, that God knows of all of those and it's in those moments, like Paul's praying here, that our eyes would be opened to the spiritual blessings and helps and realities that are already there. They already exist. It's just maybe we haven't realized it yet. And he's praying that we would get it, that we would tap into that, that we would realize it, that we would see it, that we would understand who God is and how He works for His glory and our good in all things, always, all the time, even when it makes no sense. That's what illumination is all about. And so I want to make sure you understand, like two big words as it comes to Scripture. Inspiration, like that's the nature of Scripture, that God is the ultimate author. Illumination, another big word, this is like how we understand Scripture. It's seeking to see what God intended when He had whatever author write whatever He wrote to whomever He wrote it. We're after the authorial intent not whatever we can come up with. And so Paul's praying in a nutshell here that they would get it, that they would get in their souls the goodness and glory of God, that our eyes would be open to the truths of verses 3 through 14, all those things that we have in Christ that we might better understand and live in light of the, verse 18, hope which He has called you to which He's called you? What are the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of His power toward us who believe? This is what Paul wants us to get. These things. He wants us to, first of all, get the hope. Hope that we are truly loved. He wants you to get that and know that. Hope that you are truly accepted in Christ and you won't be cast out when you fail. Because Christ has paid it all. Hope that the world is the Lord's and you are His forever. Hope that our God is just and gentle, sovereign and saving, which means that there is an end to seeing this world as just a world of futility and senselessness. No, there is a purpose to it. And there's pardon for sin, and there's power over it provided by God. And bringing this hope to others is the mission of the church. It's why the first initiative of our forward campaign is to reach our neighbors. It's why the fullers are going to the nations. Hope. We have it and we're to give it. And Paul also wants us to get that second part. The What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And I want you to notice that that word. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance? What's the next word? In. In who? The saints. The church. That God's glorious inheritance is the church. That the glory of God is connected to the saints, to the church. And we'll pick up more on that next week when we do verses 22 and 23. But for now, like, it's just a crazy thought. That Christ is our inheritance and somehow we are his as well. That we, the the church, are 2 Peter 2.9, a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. And just think about that. Like if you are in Christ, you are God's possession. And there is unbelievable comfort in that. But there's also a responsibility in that. Like from a responsibility standpoint, if you are a Christian, like you belong to the Lord. Okay, Your life is not your own. You're bought with a price. And so you belong to the Lord. And so that should affect the way you live. But one of the things I've been burdened by a lot lately is that it seems like many who call themselves Christians or evangelicals or within our own denomination today have forgotten that we are the Lord's possession. Far too many people seem to have forgotten, like, they think that being a Christian no longer means to be humble and forgiving It no longer means to have a heart to serve or bring healing to others. It no longer means, it no longer requires compassion or mercy or benevolence or gentleness with people's wounds. It no longer requires that you turn the other cheek or you love your enemies or you take the lowest place or you love your neighbor as yourself. Basically, it no longer requires Jesus. But friends, if you are truly God's possession, Christ's followers, live like it. Live like it. Jesus is our authority. He's our salvation. He is our Lord and our Savior. He's also our example. And you belong to him. And so his commands apply, all of them. Not just the ones that may fit your partic- particular theological or political bent. Now, excuse these. I'll grab these. Now, they all apply. I mean, you belong to Him. You're not your own. And so there's a responsibility there that we live like Christ if, he, if we are His people. But there's also comfort there. That we, corporately, as a church, are Christ's people. That we are His possession and do you see how crazy that is we are the ones who've we've rebelled like the very one that we have rebelled against has now reached into this world made us like through the life and death and resurrection of jesus made us alive adopted us into his family and listen to me every eye up here does not just tolerate you but loves you He doesn't just tolerate you. He loves you. And so stop living as if you're just waiting for the other shoe to drop. And he's just up in heaven waiting for you to mess up. I caught myself almost. Mess up. (laughs) So that he can get you. No. If you're in Christ, he doesn't just tolerate you. He loves you. He's for you. He's working in you always, everywhere, in everything. And as a loving father, he's going to say no sometimes. And he's going to correct. It is like, I saw yesterday, I was driving down the road, I was coming across Noansville, and some kids with their dad were on a walk, and one of the kids started to run in the street. like, And I'm driving along, and the dad reaches out and grabs him and yanks him back. It is a loving God who will yank you out of harm's way. It is a loving God who says, don't go that way. He doesn't tolerate you. He loves you. And in him, you are redeemed. You are adopted. You are chosen. You are forgiven. You are lavished with grace. It doesn't end. This is the Lord you have. If you are in Him. You are His. You are, you, you, belong, like you, are, you are His. You belong to Him. And so John 10, nothing can take you out of His hand. He holds you. Romans 8, nothing can separate you from His love. He keeps you. And the reason is because, like for this is because we bring nothing to the table. We didn't do anything. The only thing we bring to the table is our sin. Everything else... Christ did. And so remember, we are loved not because of what is in us, but because of what is in Christ. And what is in Christ? Lavish grace that makes sinners his inheritance. And Paul wants us to get it. If we will get it, it will change the way we live. Just as will the third thing he wants us to get. The immeasurable, you can look at it there in verse 19. What is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward, and note it again, us who believe? The power is toward us who believe. Like to live the Christian life, we have God's power on our side. We're not alone, it's not just up to our willpower. That's why the Lord says, my power is made perfect in your weakness. I get to flex and show off when you're weak, I am strong. It's His power that's at work in us individually and as the church. Power, that verse 20, that He worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places, Look at this power, far above all rule and authority and power and dominions and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. In other words, Christ has power over all things. Christ is supreme over all things. And therefore, quickly, number three in your notes, let us therefore live confidently under the supremacy of Christ. Live confidently, like pray and pray and then live confidently under the supremacy of Christ. as He wins. He's over all things. He's defeated. We see it here. He's defeated death. Therefore, we don't have to fear it. He's seated. Jesus is seated at the right hand of God which is like an exclamation point of power that he has accomplished his work on earth through his life, death, resurrection, and ascension. But it's also a show of power because the right hand of God is a place of exaltation and a place of power. And so Christ sits not to rest, but to reign. And so let that be a warm blanket to you. It means that right now, in whatever is going on in your individual life, whatever is going on globally, geopolitically, Jesus reigns supreme. In whatever is unseen, the heavenly places, spiritual realms, Jesus reigns supreme over all our enemies. Even right now. Even right now. 1 Peter 3, 22. Jesus Christ has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers subject to Him. Which is exactly what verse 21 says. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named not only in this age but also in the age to come. And so the point is Jesus reigns over them. And He does so even Right now, even as he allows them some level of freedom in this world, he still rules over them. But there's coming a day when they will all be footstools under his feet. Look ahead to verse 22, which is basically a quotation of Psalm 110. And he put all things under his feet. And so the point is, if Christ is supreme over all things, then live in confidence under His supremacy. If that is who He is, live in confidence before Him. As Abraham Cooper once put it, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence, not one area over which Christ Who is sovereign over all does not cry, Mine. Mine. Your marriage, your work, your singleness, your dating, your school, your politics, your vocations, your hobbies, your like, all of that is Christ's. And so the fact that He is supreme should put all those things in proper order and affect the way we live. And give us confidence that even the enemies, even the hard things, even the things that are against us, they're subject. Even Satan and the demonic forces of the world, that uh, he allows some level of movement. Even those are subject to God now, not just in the age to come, now. They're on a leash And so, brothers and sisters, even as we live in a world that wants nothing more than to test the boundaries of our relationships with one another, with thankfulness, prayer, and confidence, let us fight back against that through the sovereign power of God. It's toward us who believe. Let us take notice of the gifts that God has given us here at Providence and let us do so more often and with thankful hearts pray for one another and let us be committed to praying with thanksgiving and then also praying for one another's spiritual formation that we would be more and more and more like Christ in our gentleness and in our evangelism, in our kindness and compassion, and in standing for what's right, looking like Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. And let us commit to remembering this responsibility and comfort that it, we have in as being God's possession. And let us remember the strength by which we do these things. It lies in Christ. And so that's why prayer empowers living. As we pray with thankfulness for one another, and as we pray for the spiritual formation of one another, we will ever increasingly begin to live in confidence because Christ is supreme over all. Let's pray. Father, form us. Form us to be these kind of people. Father, that we would display our love to the watching world by inconveniencing ourselves regularly for one another. Father, help us to navigate the balance between the call to take care of our family and our family of faith. Let us not fall into the idolatry of focusing on the family to the detriment of focusing on the family of God. Or the household of faith, as it's put in your word. Father, help us to see relationships in the church as part of what it means to be a Christian. And that these relationships would be transparent and honest. Willing to tell embarrassing things about ourselves and ask awkward questions when needed. That it is common and expected for our relationships to go beyond the weather. And just knowing about you to how that is impacting us in our daily life. And so, Father, help us to be people who pray and are thankful to you. Who don't grumble, but look through glasses of grace at one another. And who pray that each other would grow in godliness and be a better reflection of Christ day by day, week by week, month by month, year by year, decade by decade. Committed to one another for our spiritual good. And help us to be reminded daily in the things that we face that we are your possession and that you are supreme over all things. And let that put all things in proper perspective for the praise of your glorious grace and the good of your inheritance in the saints. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.